right, well, want to uh, welcome everybody today, all of you gathered in all of our physical locations, those of you joining us online and our first time guests. In fact, if this is your first time to be with us, uh, we are super thrilled that you are here and uh, we'd love for you to uh, stop by this place called uh, Info Central in the lobby at all of our campuses on your way out. We'd love just to say hello. We have a gift for you, uh, no strings attached. We just wanna say hi. And uh, I want to um, just um, uh, remind all of you that next weekend we are relaunching our Midtown campus in the Broad Ripple area of our city. And so we are really thrilled for that. In fact, uh, right now uh, they are having like what we call just kind of like a soft launch this morning. There's like a, a core team of volunteers, staff, people that are uh, committed to that campus that are gathered right now. So we just want them to feel our love and support through the camera. Guys, we love you. We're praying for you. And um, looking forward to all that God is going to do in and through that campus. Well, if you have a uh, Bible, go ahead and uh, meet me in Matthew chapter five. That's where we're going to be. And if you have been with us since the beginning of the year, then you know that we are in a brand new series of messages to kick off this new year where we are walking our way through one of the greatest sermons preached of all time, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's recorded in Matthew chapters five through seven. And we're calling the series Masterclass because uh, maybe you're familiar with the uh, Masterclass online curriculum where experts in their various fields, whether that's um, business or sports or the arts, they can become your personal and private tutor within the comfort of your own home. And it's really a fascinating concept and just further evidence that we live uh, in an age where we have access to more knowledge and information than any other generation in the history of the world. And I think that's a good thing. Like, I love that. Like, if you uh, want to know something about anything, there is likely an app for that. However, knowledge in and of itself is not enough. And I think that that's panning out. I think we're coming to see that is that it used to be like sort of during the enlightenment, we just thought, well, with more knowledge, reason, and information, then we'll just live happier and happier, more fulfilled lives. But that just is showing itself not to be true because knowledge, while it is a really, really good thing, it's not enough. Like we need something more to live meaningful, uh, purposeful, joy-filled lives. And long before the days of TED Talks and thought leaders, Jesus knew this and he climbed up on a hillside and he began to teach. And what came out of his mouth was what we have as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's so important for us to understand that this is not Jesus teaching us how to have good manners. This is not a list of virtues per se. What Jesus is doing is flipping everything upside down. Actually, a, a more accurate way of saying that is he's flipping everything right side up. And he's showing us what life was meant to be like through the lens of the kingdom of God. Maybe another way of saying that is that Jesus is teaching us a whole new way to be human. And really the Sermon on the Mount is, a, is an exposition on how to live out the greatest commandment. And many of you know this, that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do you do that? Well, Jesus is going to unpack all of that for us in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, last week, if you joined us, uh, Jesus gives us these two really, really great metaphors to help us understand as Christ followers, 
the kind of impact and influence we should have on the world around us. And he says, I want you to be like salt, being preservatives of the kingdom. And I want you to be like light, like a city on a hill, like in a really, really dark world. I want you to radiate the life of Jesus and show people the way out, right? Salt and light. Now, last week, Jesus leaves off in verse 20. I didn't have time to fully unpack it with a really unsettling statement that is important for us to understand for our passage this week and next week. So look with me once again at what he says in verse 20. He goes, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter, maybe a more accurate word there is experience, the kingdom of heaven. Now at first glance, it appears as if Jesus is setting up a little competition, Cobra Kai style, between us and the religious elite. So he's saying, hey, you're training in my dojo. And then you've got those evil religious leaders over in Cobra Kai's dojo. And you're going to have this tournament where your righteousness better be better than theirs. And, and uh, the first century hearers would have heard that. And they would have said, Jesus, that is impossible. And here's the reason why. The religious leaders and the Pharisees, like it was their full-time job to be religious. They were professional religious people. And so in a sense, when Jesus says this, this would be sort of like, if he were here today, he would say, like, unless you can shoot a three-pointer better than Steph Curry. Like, unless you can sing, you know, easy on me better than Adele. Then there is no way you're going to experience the kingdom of heaven. And we're just like, there, there's just no way I can do that. What Jesus is talking about here, though, is not external belief or external behaviors or perceptions. He's talking about motivations of the heart. And the big thing that he had against the religious leaders is that all they really cared about was outward perception. Their heart could be really, really corrupt, but as long as they didn't sort of act that out or, or maybe as sort of, long as they had this perception of holiness and righteousness, then they were good with that. And so they were playing a game and they wanted basically to set up this system. They would codify righteousness so that way they could look down on everybody else. And Jesus is so out on that. And he said, that is legalism. And legalism is the kryptonite of grace. So Jesus is driving down on motivations of the heart. And that is so important because it sets up what he does next, both this week and next week. Jesus is going to walk through six types or six case studies of righteousness at a heart level. And we're going to look at two of them today, but they are two really, really big ones. Jesus is going to talk about anger and lust. And what he's going to say is really a head-on collision with what society consistently and constantly preaches at us 24 hours a day. In fact, like preaching a message like this, I feel a little bit like I'm playing that old board game operation. You know, where it's like you get the little tweezers and the nose with the red light, and you hit the little like wall, it's like, Eat! and that's not going to happen today. Because, and, and I, me included, because uh, there isn't anybody listening to this right now in which anger or lust hasn't affected our lives in some traumatic way, whether it's our anger or lust or somebody else's anger or lust. And so um, what I want you to see is that Jesus is helping us see life through the lens of the kingdom of God. And he's showing us that anger and lust is actually the culprit of a lot of our pain. It's actually what's keeping us from loving our neighbor well. And I want you to know that uh, even though as we kind of walk through this, that uh, at the end of this message, that you should feel hope. And that if you don't feel any hope, then I've actually not done my job well. 
All right, so let's just go through this line by line. I'm gonna read and explain, read and explain, and then I'm gonna try to offer some application. All right, so Jesus says this, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. So once again, all throughout this sermon, Jesus would say, hey, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So that's his way of saying, hey, here's how you see it. Let me flip it around and show you a different way of seeing it. And he quotes the Old Testament law about murder. And this would have come right out of Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It is the sixth of the 10 commandments. And at a surface level, this is very doable, right? Like, it's like, I I've watched the people versus OJ and that is not me. I am no Ted Bundy. Right? I have no plans on ever murdering anybody. And then Jesus raises the bar in verse 22. But I say, even if you're angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. In other words, we can kind of go through our whole lives and like he's saying, hey, the point isn't that you would just like uh, never physically take somebody's life and say that you actually have fulfilled that commandment. He said, you, maybe you've never murdered anybody, but have you murdered anybody in your thoughts? It's like, have you ever written somebody off as worthless due to your anger? So I think it's really, really important here, uh, both with anger and lust, to understand what Jesus is saying and what he is not saying. So what is anger? A few weeks ago, our family was back in Southwest Missouri uh, visiting extended family over the holidays. And uh, my son and I uh, dropped in at a local CrossFit gym to get a workout in. And we're sort of newbies in the gym. We're kind of trying to figure our way around. We knew a couple of people, but not everybody. And uh, they had a section over here where it was like, they had barbells over here. But then over in this corner, they had uh, some like really nice barbells. And so we went over to that corner. There wasn't a whole lot of people in the gym. We grabbed a couple of those. We went over to our square. We were kind of getting warmed up, getting ready to work out. And this older man walked up to me, scowl on his face, didn't say hello, didn't introduce himself. He just walked right up to me, grabbed the barbell out of my hands, yanked it out of my hands and said, this is mine. And he was like, those barbells are private, personal barbells. They allow us to keep at the gym. This is mine. Don't use it. And he walked away and I got angry. Right, right. I was like, I was like, man, like, you know, like you didn't give me any benefit of the doubt. Like if I would have known that, then I wouldn't have taken it. Like you didn't even give me a chance to apologize. Is that what Jesus is talking about? And I would say no. Right. Here, here's the definition of anger. All right. Anger is a spontaneous feeling, emphasis on spontaneous, that arises in our mind and felt in our body when our will is confronted or obstructed. Now there are all types of anger, like good and bad, right? There is the anger of a wounded ego, which I would say was kind of me in that moment. And it's like this idea of like, how dare you say that to me? How dare you treat me that way? There's the anger of injustice, right? You get angry on behalf of others who have no voice. And in and of itself, anger is not necessarily a sin. In fact, at times, it is the emotionally healthy, mature response that we should have. In fact, Jesus got angry on occasion. But if you notice, what sparked his anger was never uh, something, an offense against him. It was always the injustice of others. Uh, Jesus didn't get angry when he was arrested and tried unfairly. Jesus didn't lose his temper on the cross. Uh, the Bible also says that we should be slow to get angry. So it's not saying that we should never get angry. It just says, be, be slow. And the Bible is always showing us that very thin line between anger and sin. Probably the most clear passage on this is Ephesians 4.26. It says, be angry, 
but in your anger, don't sin. So it's possible, necessary even, depending upon the circumstances. So it could be easy to read verse 22 and assume that Jesus is saying that we should never be angry with anyone. But look at it again. Does he command us to never get angry? No, he doesn't actually command us anything. And I would even venture to say that's impossible because anger is an emotion, not an action. Now we can take action on our emotions and we can influence our emotions, but we can't always control them. Rather, here's what Jesus is saying in the original languages. He's saying, whoever is being angry. And you might say, well, isn't it the same thing? And I would say, no, no, it's not. Actually, there's two Greek words for anger. There's um, the word thumos, which is like a temper, like a, a quick flare up of anger. You experience thumos when somebody cuts you off in traffic or you step on a Lego in the hallway that you told your kids to pick up 10 times, right? It's like, it's like this flare up. And then there's orge, which is a deeper kind of anger that you brew over. You replay the offense over and over in your mind. You get stuck in it. You develop narratives and you can't and you won't move on. It's a grudge that you carry around. I would say that when the guy yanked the barbell out of my hands, that was Thumos. Later after the workout on my way home in the truck, when I started calling him names under my breath, Orge, right? Both aren't great. The second one is toxic. That's the word that Jesus uses here. In the Greek, this is a present participle. So more literally, he's saying, whoever is being angry. If Jesus were speaking American, he would say, whoever is nursing a grudge. It is not, never get mad. It is whoever is nursing a grudge. So can I ask you, anyone nursing a grudge? Anyone angry over something that maybe happened years ago? and you're still holding on to it. It's kind of like uh, the Incredible Hulk said, hey, my secret isn't that I get angry. My secret is that I'm always angry. And you've just kind of got this like reserve of anger just underneath the surface, this low grade, re ready, to, ready to blow. It's kind of like that, that underwater volcano that just blew near Japan over the weekend. It's just, just it's, it's there, all the pressure's there under the surface. And then all it takes is something to ignite it. And then there's a sharp word that's given over here. There's a sarcastic comment dropped over there. And most often these hurtful, harmful words that slip out are most commonly directed towards the people that we say we love the most. And so the people that take the brunt of it is, is a spouse, it's a child, it's a close friend, it's a coworker, and the damage is immense. And most of us carry around a supply of anger within all of us because there is no shortage of things that have hurt us. We are a very angry society. Have any of you noticed? Especially over the last two years. And we're angry for all kinds of reasons, most of which can be traced back to an emotional wound or trauma of some kind. Dallas Willard in his classic book, The Divine Conspiracy says it this way, find someone who has embraced anger and you will likely find a person nursing an emotional wound. Another way of saying it is anger is grief forcing its way out. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, hey, don't just think that you're okay 
because you've never literally ended someone's life when you've actually ended several relationships in a very damaging way due to the anger that you wouldn't let go of. Now, unfortunately, he's not finished. He says, if you call someone an idiot, and actually the technical word that he uses is raka, then he goes, you are in danger of being brought before the court. So he says, hey, man, if you call somebody raka, uh, everybody say raka. It's a fun word to say. It's actually a four letter word in the Aramaic. So everybody just cussed in church. <laughs> but I led you to do it. So I guess it's okay. All right. It was an insult that you used on the street. It literally meant like empty minded. And we have a whole bunch of words that we could use for this that I can't repeat from this stage. But it's the equivalent of like, you know, you moron. You idiot, you're stupid. And Jesus says, like, whenever you do that, you basically sort of cross over this line. You are in danger of going to the court. The word that he uses is Sanhedrin, which was the highest court in the land. It says our Supreme Court. That was the Supreme Court of Israel. Thought in that day to be an earthly parallel to a heavenly reality. So it's super heavy language. Jesus is like, man, if you curse somebody, write somebody off, call them a fool, you've just moved from judgment over their behavior to judgment over their character. And ancient Israel was an honor-shame culture, which we are quickly becoming. And Jesus warns us of this. And he goes on, he says, hey, if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell which is right there, the little tweezers up against the thing. Because I know that for many of you, that, that's a trigger. For many of you, that brushes up against maybe some legalism in your church background. You're like, this is exactly why I'm not a Christian. This is why I don't believe in God. Like, I, I, can't, I can't stand this idea. And these are super, super heavy words. And once again, it is so important for us to understand what Jesus is saying and what he is not. And so oftentimes we read that and we hear or we've heard it taught this way. We say, well, if you get angry and curse someone, then God will send you to hell. That is not what Jesus is saying. There is a difference between a warning and a threat. And a warning is something you say to somebody out of love. And the technical word that Jesus uses for hell here is, was a real place. It was the word Gehenna. And this was a real place that the first century crowd would have known about. They would have walked past it. It was the garbage dump on the south side of Jerusalem. Keep in mind, this is centuries before waste management and recycling. And they would just throw garbage and refuge over the wall and it would just be on fire 24 hours a day. It was a hoarded place. And actually um, ancient Israel has a really sketchy history with this where they would often slaughter innocent children uh, to the false gods. And over time, the area of Gehenna became a euphemism for the judgment of hell. So uh, hear what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. He's not diminishing the eternal reality of hell, but he's actually not talking about that here. He's talking about the immediate sort of like hell on earth. In other words, he's saying like, when you get to this place where you're angry and you're nursing a grudge and you're cursing somebody's character, he goes, literally your relationships, your life, your peace is headed towards the garbage dump. And Jesus is like giving us this warning. Like, hey, it's totally understandable to experience the emotion of anger. What you do next with it determines the trajectory of your life and relationships. Nobody just wakes up one day and murders someone. It's the result of a process that's been happening for a long time. And none of us think we would ever be capable of that. But I would imagine that these stages are probably familiar in your life. Stage one of, of uh, anger is we feel the emotion of it. 
This is when you get cut off in traffic. This is when somebody sends you a nasty email. This is when you read something you don't like. It's the emotion of anger. Very, very understandable. Stage two, though, is when your ego is wounded, which leads then to stage three, which is you play the self-righteous victim and you start to develop narratives in your head. Instead of going and talking to the person about it, then you have imaginary conversations with the person about it. Uh, stage four is you give in to contempt. And now we're getting on really, really dangerous ground. Contempt is character assassination. In other words, because of this offense, I'm better than the person who wronged me. When in reality, I'm not better. I'm just a different kind of messed up. And so in order to justify the illusion that I'm better, then I've got to write them off. I've got to paint the reality in the, it, where they are in the worst possible light. And I see them through a distorted lens. And so they are evil and I am good. They are guilty and I am innocent. I'm going to highlight their weaknesses and I'm going to ignore their strengths. This is called tribalism and it is everywhere. I don't agree with you on something, then I'm going to villainize you. Stage five. It ends up leaking out of our mouth in verbal violence. So insults, sarcasm, slander, gossip, rants, keyboard warriors. Unchecked anger is toxic. And we are hurt by anger itself. Like, isn't this true? Like when you just hear through the grapevine that somebody is angry with you, even if you haven't heard from them yet, even if you haven't talked to them, like immediately, like, like I'm hurt. Just the knowledge of knowing that somebody is angry is enough to hurt me. Stage six is hell on earth. Messy divorce and destructive disputes. If any of you have ever walked through any of that, you know exactly what that's talking about. And then stage seven is the unthinkable. Domestic abuse, violence, and even murder. Now to clarify, this is not a video game where the goal is to get to the next level, all right? Jesus is offering a warning here. And he says, all of this starts when you get angry and you decide to stay angry. And anger is like a leech. You notice it and you get it off. It's painful, but it's doable. But the longer it stays on, the deeper and more destructive it gets. Now, our culture does not agree with Jesus on this at all. In fact, it says the exact opposite. There is so much anger over everything. And the narrative is changing to say, if you want to get anything done, get angry. Like if you are upset about anything, the way to do it is to go online and you get all your friends and family angry as well. And that's how we'll change the world. And it's not really working, is it? Dallas Willard once again says this. He goes, there isn't anything that can be done with anger that cannot be done better without it. And we kind of stink at relational conflict and reconciliation. And we're really, really good at passive aggression and losing our temper. So how do we break the vicious cycle of, of uh, anger? Well, Jesus offers two hypothetical scenarios as a model. He says, so verse 23, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. So what he's talking about is like, he's talking about going to church, right? So like in the first century, uh, the altar was in the temple in Jerusalem. And let's just say you had a farmer who lived 80 miles away, time to go to church. And you would go to the temple with a sacrifice. Like, so you get the sheep, you put it over your shoulders, you walked 80 miles to the altar. You get up there, you're ready to lay the sacrifice at the altar. And all of a sudden, ah, oh, I remember. 
My neighbor is really upset with me. Haven't had a chance to talk to them about it yet, but I actually put up a fence this last week and I actually crossed over their property line and they're really, really upset. They called me Raka and I haven't done anything about it yet. And so what I need to do is not offer, offer the sacrifice. What I need to do is not sing a song yet, not, not give any offering yet. What, what I need to do is leave this here and book it back to 80 miles to home. And I need to sit down and I need to make things right with my neighbor. It sounds extreme, but Jesus is showing us how serious reconciliation really is. And he is saying, we don't li- I don't like this. This is what he's saying. Your relationship with God is tied up in your relationship with other people like it or not. And so if there's ever a season of your life where God seems distant, where worship feels stale, your prayers seems like it's just bouncing off the rubber ceiling right back, there could be a lot of different reasons for that. One potential reason is that there is unresolved anger in your life that is kinking off your connection to God. If you're not at peace with someone, I don't like that any more than you do. But I'm haunted by Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where he says, Husbands, love your wives so that your prayers won't be hindered. And he gives us one more. He says in verse 25, Hey, when you are on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. So keep in mind, a lot of times we want to take this passage and talk about how, you know, Christians aren't supposed to sue each other. When in the reality, that's not what Jesus is really talking about here. We can actually get into that later in the gospel of Matthew. Here's what Jesus is essentially saying. I mean, if you don't deal with this right away, things could get way worse. So what he's talking about in this immediate context is he's like, hey man, like if you're on your way to court with somebody, like settle out of court because you could get there and they actually, maybe it escalates real quickly and they throw you into what was called in ancient Israel, debt prison. And debt prison was illogical. That's why they eventually did away with it because debt prison was like, hey man, if, if I owe you money and I can't pay it, well, you can just throw me into debt prison until I can repay it. That didn't make any sense because I can't work, so I can't repay it. So you'd be there a really long time. And Jesus is simply saying, hey, man, you need to deal with this right away. Don't let it fester. I have a question for you, and this is not a rhetorical one. When you have an issue with someone and you don't go directly to them and talk about it, does it get better or worse? Yeah, almost always worse. It gets inflated in both of your minds. It gets blown out of proportion. You're you're stressed, you're anxious, you can't sleep. You develop a twitch in your left eye. And Jesus is like, man, like just go. But I've noticed this from personal experience. When there's an issue, like just to go like right away, 99% of the time it deescalates. You come to an understanding. This is why Paul would say later, he's like, hey man, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Jesus is stressing the urgency of personal reconciliation which raises a whole bunch of other questions. Anytime I've ever taught on reconciliation, anytime I've ever like counseled anybody on this, there's always questions. Well, what about? You know, like I, I want to reconcile, but they won't take coffee with me. Or you know what? Uh, they uh, just are stubborn or, or they, they still sued me or whatever. And it's like, what about this? What about that? And what, all very valid questions. But I just want, this is just an observation. Jesus actually doesn't go into any of those questions here. He just sort of lays out the principle. Now, all that stuff can kind of be worked through later, but I'm reminded of what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, as far as it depends on you. 
Yeah, you can't control their reaction. You can't control what they're gonna do. But Jesus is talking about the own internal anger that maybe you're, you're harboring. Now listen, easy to understand, not easy to do, but Jesus is showing us a whole new way to be human. He's flipping things right side up, which might seem a little bit disorienting. All right, we got about uh, 10 more minutes to talk about lust. All right, so, all right, so verse 27. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So once again, same kind of formula. And he's using the same kind of scaffolding to unpack this. And so this quote, not to lust, came right out of Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. It was number seven of the 10 commandments. And once again, it's easy to listen. And we go, yep, got it. Like adultery is a bad thing. Like even most of society right now, even if they're not Christ followers, we go, yep, that's a really, really bad thing. We're not gonna, we're not gonna do it. But now Jesus uh, raises the bar and says, but even if you lust, you're guilty of doing the same thing. And at first glance, it sounds like an impossible idea. Like I can't even go to the grocery store without being exposed to soft porn in the checkout line. And so it is easy to kind of write Jesus off as out of touch and unreasonable. So once again, so important here to understand what Jesus is saying and what he is not saying. So two things that he's not saying, if you're taking notes, he is not talking about the appreciation of beauty. God created the human body in the book of Genesis and he called it good. Actually, the Hebrew word was tov and it was an aesthetic word that had to do with sight. So to look at a man or a woman and find them attractive, that is not a sin, that is normal. Here's the next thing Jesus is not saying. He's not talking about the momentary flash of sexual desire. That is not a sin, but a temptation. And temptation is not sin. In that moment, at a neurobiological level, against your will, you can be flooded with a feeling of desire for someone that you see. And you can't control temptation, but you certainly can influence it. And what you do next is so important. I love how that 16th century reformer, Martin Luther puts it. He says, we should not make the bolstering of Jesus teaching too tight here as if anyone who is merely tempted to look at another with lust is eternally damned. I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from making a nest in my hair or from biting off my nose. Right, little 16th century humor for you. He's basically saying, hey, man, like to, to notice somebody that is attractive and to even feel sexual desire for them is like a bird flying over your head. But choosing to lust, like, okay, I'm going to undress them with my eyes. I'm going to imagine a scenario with them. Well, that's allowing the bird to make a nest in your hair. Another way of saying it is we are not our animalistic impulses. It's not the first look that's a problem. It's the second and the third. It's what you do immediately with it. And... Rather than override it, we can give into it, cultivate it, let it take root, and it always leads to some place we never wanted to go nor ever thought we would go. See, the problem is when we turn other people into objects or things or um, tender in the language of the app that is kindling for the fire of our sexual desire. So it's really easy to say, well, you know, what, what's it hurt if I lust, just as long as I don't act on it, then it's okay. But where do you think the actions come from? 
Like this is all where it starts. Like porn addiction, hookup culture, sexual harassment, objectification, which is the dehumanization of others in order to satisfy our sexual appetite, adultery and affairs. It always starts somewhere. And understand that the form of the human body is good and sexual desire is not dirty. But what we are talking about is being ruled by desire rather than being rulers over it. And society once again collides with Jesus on this and says things like, well, the heart wants what it wants. And to suppress your animalistic desires is repressive. To which I would say, yeah, until you're the one betrayed, cheated, or left. And even if it's not your relationship, many of you have likely been impacted and affected by somebody else's lust that took root and impacted your friends and family. And as Jesus does with anger, he actually shows that there's a deeper issue going on and there's always a process that leads us to a place we never thought we would go. So you take that passage from 1 Corinthians 13 on love that's read at almost every wedding I've ever been to. Love is patient, kind, loving, right? And how, if you compare that to lust, love is patient, but lust is always in a rush. Like lust doesn't wanna wait for the next date, let alone marriage. It wants what it wants and it wants it now. Love is faithful. Lust is short term. Love is fine to wait because it's in it for the long haul till death do us part. Lust is in it for the short term, just as long as the emotional high lasts, your body doesn't change or the romance doesn't go away, which usually the shelf life or like romantic feeling is about two years and sexual intimacy often shorter than that. And so we chase this high from person to person, relationship to relationship, sexual encounter to sexual encounter. Love is selfless. Lust is selfish. Love puts the good of another ahead of your own, whether that is your spouse or your enemy. And some of you might say, well, what if they're the same person? And I would say that simplifies things for you then. <laughs> it, is the will, it, is, it is the willing the good of another over your own. Lust is narcissism in a sexual encounter. I'm using you to fulfill my own need. Love is an act of the will. It's not just a feeling. You don't fall in love. You make a decision with your whole mind and body. Lust is when uh, your will has been overridden by desire, no matter the cost. You see the difference? Everything in our rom-com, Fifty Shades of Grey hookup culture is working overtime to replace love with lust and then call it normal. And the words, I love you, unfortunately in our day, just mean, I, I wanna have sex with you, like right now. And I have feelings that may or may not last, but I wanna act on those feelings like right now, regardless of the cost. And the reason why Jesus is so hardcore on this is because he knows what this does to our lives. And he's trying to emphasize the importance of the great commandment to love others well. And lust is the exact opposite of love. Now notice in the passage, he does not say, hey, stop lusting. He doesn't say that because we'd be like, Jesus, that is impossible. Instead, what he does is he lays out a process or steps to help us out of compassion. And he says this in verse 29. So if your eye, even your good eye causes you to lust, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into 
hell or Gehenna. That's the word he uses again. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. To which we might read and say, what? Like those are my options? And Jesus is not teaching self-mutilation. If he was, then he's missing the most obvious part of the body that we should cut off. All right. So many things I'm filtering right now. Okay, so he is using hyperbole to stress effect. How do I know that? Well, a blind or a crippled person can still lust. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is he's, he's uh, saying, hey, there's a real urgency to this, like that you don't want to mess around with it. Like, he's like, you need to deal with it. Like, don't shrug it off. Don't, in the words of Dallas Willard, once again, like uh, sin management, like I'm just trying to manage my lust. Like, he's like, don't just like put a bandaid on it and take some ibuprofen. He goes, amputate. And um, this is why, like he's getting at motivations of the heart here. This is why like accountability software is a good tool, but it's oftentimes not enough because it doesn't deal with the heart. And I want you to hear this so clearly because oftentimes we can read this or we've heard it taught this way that if you lust, Jesus will send you to hell. That is not what he says. He says that if uh, you follow this path, your life will end up in the garbage dump, like hell on earth which is what an addiction is, which is what the inability to experience sexual intimacy is, which is what like the crippling burden of guilt and shame that many of you know all too well, or the end of a marriage or the emotional pain of adultery or affair, hell on earth. And he says, it all starts back here with an innocent second look. And it does something in your heart. See, really what this is, is a way for us to sort of nurse our brokenness and pain. I was watching um, a documentary on Tiger Woods last weekend and was talking about his relationship with his father, Earl. And they had a really close relationship. They were best friends in many ways, but there was often a lot of ways in which that relationship was highly dysfunctional. And as a result, Tiger kind of um, had a, a little bit of a low-grade resentment towards his father, even though his father pushed him so hard. Arguably, could say that um, his father was the reason why Tiger became so good, but it came at a cost. And uh, it came out like in the documentary that when Tiger was young, like he would go out to the golf course and, and uh, his father had a Winnebago that he would park at the golf course and he would take women into the Winnebago. Like Tiger, Tiger saw all that. When he would go on the road in, in uh, golf tournaments, his father would be unfaithful to his his mom and the tiger, tiger would see all that. And he never told anybody, he just sort of like, it was a wound that he was sort of harboring. And obviously his career blows up. He becomes arguably one of the greatest golfers of all time, but he and his father are sort of distancing themselves from each other. And there was a lot of pain there that was undealt with. And, and Tiger gets married, he has a family, and then his father dies. And that's when the wheels came off because he didn't know how to grieve and he didn't know what to do with this loss. And so he ended up retreating to Vegas and started, uh, hanging out with female escorts. It then escalated into like relate, multiple relationships across the country with various women. And you could see that what he was doing was there, there was this brokenness within him that he, was, he hadn't grieved well. And he was, he was running to try to fulfill this thing in his, in his heart that was broken. And many of us probably knew that, you know, his marriage fell apart. He was publicly, all of this stuff kind of came to light. 
Later, when he first came back to the game of golf, there was somebody interviewing him and they said, Tiger, how do you explain the decisions you've made in your personal life? And he simply said this, he goes, I just got away from my values. And that may or may, may or may not be true, but I don't, I don't know that that's the entire truth. Because the thing is, is that his grief, his absence of knowing how to grieve well, the brokenness that was within him was pushing him to try to satisfy something within him that it could never satisfy. And this is why like lust and sexual desire can be so damaging to us because it's very similar to an addiction to alcohol or a substance of some kind. This is the reason why if any of you have had a current or a past battle with pornography, the times when you were the most susceptible is when you feel lonely, stressed, or depressed. What are you doing? You're trying to nurse a wound. And Jesus doesn't just want external behavior. Jesus doesn't just want you to not get caught in that second look. He wants to do heart surgery and heal you from the inside out. So what is the way out? Well, this is quite possibly the most difficult for us to obey, but it is not impossible. It takes practice, meaning repetition. It takes community, meaning, hey, don't do this alone. And it takes the Holy Spirit. And I want you to hear this really clearly, that looking to lust is a habit of the mind, not a law of gravity. Like it can be broken in apprenticeship to Jesus. You can be set free and transformed and renewed and healed. Maybe not 100% of the time, but much of the time. But here's the thing that Jesus is saying. It, it'll cost you though. It'll cost you an arm and a leg or an eye or a hand. Meaning you, you, instead of like taking it right up to the line, like give yourself some margin. And maybe this means you gotta make some difficult decisions with your entertainment choices. Maybe this means you're not gonna travel alone anymore or be in a hotel room by yourself. Maybe this means that you're gonna trade that iPhone for a flip phone. Maybe this means no more apps uh, of a certain kind. Like you're not trying to be good to earn salvation, but you're taking apprenticeship to Jesus seriously and you wanna love your neighbor well. That instead of looking at that woman and objectifying her, you see her as a sister in Christ made in the image of God and you don't wanna hurt her even with a look. And some of you right now maybe have some questions like, what if I've already messed up what if I'm right now smack dab in the middle of a messy divorce and this is the reason? What if right now I'm in the grips of sexual sin? I want you to know that this is the reason why Jesus went to a cross. If you've ever wondered why, why the cross seems so extreme, this is it that Jesus knew that it would require a death, his death, a burial, his burial, and a resurrection, his resurrection, so that you could come back from, from all kinds of sins, sexual sin included. And this is a backstop of his grace. And what I want you to hear is that what I love about the Bible is that it doesn't um, scrub clean all of the sin and the sexual sin that is found in people's lives in the Bible. So many people gave into this and their lives blew up because of it. But there isn't, and I want you to hear me in this, there is not anyone listening to this today that is beyond the grips of God's grace. No one. And I also know there's a number of people listening to this today and you've been the victim of somebody else's lust, some sort of abuse, maybe, maybe, maybe rape, and you're hurting too. And I want you to know the same resurrection power that Jesus demonstrated when he walked out of a grave is alive and well in your life as well. And I want you to know that there is hope beyond this. 
Here's what the Bible asks of us to do. Just come clean of it, like repent of it, which just simply means I'm gonna turn from it, which means I'm gonna hand it over to Jesus. I'm gonna lay it down at the foot of the cross. Now hear me, there may still be some consequences that linger. The marriage might still end in divorce. There might still be some things that have impacted your life, but it means that you can lay down the cloaks of shame and guilt and remorse and that there can be new life found in the grace of Jesus Christ. And so I know this is heavy and it's needed because this has impacted all of us. And so what I wanna do is across all of our campuses and even if you're joining us online, if you would just bow your head and close your eyes, this is simply for privacy and focus. And I just wanna end by praying a pastoral prayer over you inviting the Holy Spirit to come and to do a unique tailor-made work in your life for what you need right now. So Father, I come to you and we're so thankful that Jesus was so compassionate that he was straight with us. He gave us what we needed to hear. Maybe not always what we wanted to hear, but what we need to hear. And God, we realize that we live in a world where because of our sin, fallenness, and brokenness, we see everything upside down, including human relationships, including the purpose of anger, including lust and sexual sin. And God, we wanna see these issues through the lens of your kingdom. That only comes by way of your Holy Spirit where you flip it right side up. And God, these two issues of anger and lust, they have affected every single one of our lives, whether we're the one that has an issue with these two subjects or somebody that we know had an issue. And so God, we need forgiveness. We need healing. We need restoration. We need reconciliation. We need redemption. More than anything, God, right now, we, we know that um, what we need to feel from your Holy Spirit is that there isn't anybody that is beyond the grips of your grace if we come clean, if we repent, if we hand it over to you. And God, I pray right now that you would just do a supernatural lingering work in each one of these rooms and online in the lives of those who are listening who would say, we simply, God, need you to deliver us from this mess, this Gehenna, this hell on earth that we and others have created due to our sin. We just give it to you. And we pray that you would bring healing in Jesus' name. And everybody says, 